word of the Lord. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And remembering from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. The word of the Lord. Amen. You can be seated. We'll dismiss our school-age kids, those uh, to the back. There we go, Miss Robin, Miss Heather back there. The rest of you, if you want to open your Bibles, uh, I'd encourage you to do it if you brought one or have a device with it on there. It's something powerful about seeing it in the Word of God to First uh, John chapter 2. First John chapter 2. <clears throat> um, we're not going to preach the classic uh, Easter text today. We're in the uh, process of walking through uh, the epistles or the letters of John. But I would encourage you to do that uh, sometime today, at some point today, would you read through Luke 24? Uh, we might end up jumping back into it if we have time. It's just this phenomenal, uh, this phenomenal. And it's amazing to me in the story of the resurrection how no one remembered that Jesus said this is what he had to do. And everyone was perplexed and they were depressed and they were discouraged and they were walking in their grief as one would after seeing such a gruesome death of a close friend. And yet Jesus came um, unexpectedly and, uh, and blew their mind and changed the course of history. What an important, impactful moment. And maybe as you look back, you can think about a time where you met that Jesus, that you committed your life to him and you found the forgiveness and joy. And so we can sing songs like this, that there's nothing better than Jesus. And that is certainly what he does. Have you ever had a moment that change your life forever? You know, you think back in the moments you change. I remember the first time I saw uh, Ashley, my now bride, at church. I was sitting across, the, I was sitting over in this section. She was sitting over here. I'd never seen her before. I was working as an intern at this church. And in Ashley, I look up, we're in the middle of singing some Brooklyn Tabernacle song. And there's Ashley just clothed in all her splendor. And I'm like, God, who is, who is she? Like, seriously, like, is that, well, here's what had happened. A couple, a couple days before that, I had told the Lord, hey, Lord, I'm not looking for any other person. Like, you're gonna have to bring them in my path. And so I didn't know if this was like God dropping her in front of me or if it was the enemy, like trying to get me, you know? So I'm like, Lord, who is it? So I kind of threw my fleece out and I said, all right, Lord, if next week she comes back and has glasses on, I'll know she's from you. I'm not saying you should do that. I'm just saying that's what I did and the weakness of my faith. Lo and behold, next week, she comes walking with a pair of glasses on. I'm like, thank you, Jesus. This is it, right? She's the one. That was, that was the moment. And then, you know, a couple years later, we get married. And I was one of those moments that just changed your life forever. And then, you know, holding my babies when they were born. You're holding them and you're thinking, how in the world did a mess like me 
create something so beautiful like this. And it's one of those moments. I remember those moments even in my walk with the Lord. I remember three or four distinct moments where God just broke through all the mundane and the mess of my life. And he, I encountered him almost always with tears because of his grace. His grace so good to me. This is one of those moments we read back, not just a moment that affected the lives of these disciples, but it affected the lives of everyone. This is the good news of the gospel. This is good news. You know, that's what the word gospel literally means. It's good news that we don't have to stay in the grave any longer, that we don't have to stay in the state of mourning any longer. That's why he turns graves into gardens. That's, that's, that's the point, right? This is what, this is what he does. That's the good news. Today, as we celebrate Easter, the good news, the best news, the God who loved the whole world took on flesh and did life with us and was crucified on a cruel Roman cross in our place. And three days later, he ascended to the Father and he will eventually return. And that Easter event is what changed the world. It literally split time in half. If you write the date today, you write, it's April 17th, 2022, in the year of our Lord. This event is the reason for our hope. And even though some of us are fighting some great battles without and within, even today we can have real hope and real joy and real gratitude because we serve a risen king who is one day coming back for his kids. That's not just good news, friends. That is great news. I've been reading a book called If the Tomb is Empty, Anything is Possible. If the tomb is empty, then anything is possible. You believe that? You know, I used to, <clears throat> used to in the churches I grew up in, my dad was a pastor. He was a great pastor. I'm wearing his jacket today. I'm hoping I'm channeling a little Larry Allen to you. Uh, might mean that we're going to go long and I'm going to cry a couple times if that's the case. <clears throat> it's true, man. He loved people and he loved the Lord. But when we would go to church on Easter, the pastor would get up and say, he is risen, and all the people would say, he is risen indeed. Any of y'all ever been to church before? Is this something new? (laughs) Man, where y'all from? Y'all go in the South? This is what we did. Maybe that was just our church. I don't know. I thought everybody did that. He is risen, he's risen indeed. But I, I want us to have a new saying, and I want it to be that. If the tomb is empty, then anything is possible. So I'm gonna say, if the tomb is empty, and I want you to say anything is possible. You okay, right? Okay, if the tomb is empty, all right, let's do it one more time. You're getting good. If the tomb is empty, that is, the, that is the message of Easter. If the tomb is empty, then anything is possible. And the Bible is filled with characters who experience this firsthand, who their testimony is just that. Because the tomb is empty, then anything is possible. And he changed murderers into missionaries and adulterers into God-fearing kings. This is the story. This is the good news. I always wondered in so many of our churches why you'd go to church and everybody looked like they'd been chewing on a pickle or something. Everybody just just sad and got this scowl on their face. I don't think those people really believe that. And I hope we do. If the tomb is empty, then anything is possible. Now, sometimes it's hard to see it. Paul says we see through a glass dimly like fogged up glasses. We can sometimes barely make out the glimpses of what God had originally created us to be before sin entered. 
I heard a sociologist say that all stories are trying to answer these four questions. Why are we here? What's gone wrong? What will fix things? And what will it look like in the end? Why are we here? What's gone wrong? What's going to fix things? And then what, what's that going to look like once, once it's been fixed? And the gospel so beautifully tells that story. Chapter after chapter and book after book, this beautiful story in the scriptures of God's love story. Not just about how we can do what we have to so that one day we can be with him, but rather the reverse of that, that God has done everything so that he can come to us. That is the story, and that's certainly what he did. I want to really focus on three phrases today that we get in 1 John. So if you're not there, flip over to 1 John <clears throat> chapter 2. Maybe flip one more page to chapter 3, verse 1. The first thing I want to talk about today, as a result of the resurrection, if the tomb is empty, then anything is possible, is a restored identity. He says in chapter 3, verse 1, John's letters to the church, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. See what kind of love that God calls us his kids. This is so revolutionary, especially if you are on the outside of the Jewish religion. If you are a, a, a Gentile or even a Samaritan, you are on the outside. That there was no way you would have ever have access. The closest you could do is live next to those people. And scripture talks about them. This group of people all throughout the uh, Old Testament and even into the New. They're called the God-fearers. They live on the outside of the camp, but they're close enough so they could kind of just get a little, a little bit of God the Father. Well, then John writes this letter. Jesus came to proclaim this. And God, John writes this letter and says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, not just the Jews, but the Jews and the Gentiles and every other person who's ever been created. The Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. This is so revolutionary, so paradigm shifting, so transformative that we should be called the children of God. And not that that, not, not just that, we are that. Let that sink in just, just for a minute. This is John bragging on his heavenly father, and I love it. It is so beautiful. You ever did this? In, you remember back in elementary school where you'd brag on your dad? Anybody ever did this? Maybe this was just a thing I did. I remember being in first or second grade in line at the cafeteria for something, and I was arguing with this little punk in front of me, Brad. He had this really cool mullet, and I didn't have that. I had this haircut. I've had it all my life. This is just the only thing my hair does. And uh, this little punk Brad in front of me was telling me how awesome his dad was. And he, he raced race cars and he was strong, had big old biceps. And so me and Brad, we started arguing, right? And, um, and I bet him a chocolate milk that day that my dad could kick his dad's butt. <clears throat> now, I don't know why I said that. I'd never seen my dad fight. My dad wore a shirt and tie when he cut the grass all the time. This is just, this is just who he was. I, but I was convinced that if it came down to it, my dad would take care of business, right? I was, I was bragging on my dad, and my dad would take care of your dad, okay, Brad? And I, I, don't, I, don't, know why, I don't know why we did that. I, I thought about this as, as John is, is talking about God the Father. See what kind of extravagant love the Father. He's the best kind of Father. Friday showed us the extent of his love. And Sunday showed us the extent of his power. That's incredible. Not only do you have a heavenly father that loves you so much that he would send his only son to die for you, right? John 3, 16. But, he just, but, but if he didn't raise from the dead, he would just be a good man who loved you well. 
But he rose from the grave, validating everything he said. So now you have the perfect heavenly father that bestows his incredible love upon you. And you also have a father who could kick anyone's butt out there. He, he is the king of kings. All right, chapter two. This is our text for today. I'm so excited to preach to you today. If you haven't, I've had a lot of coffee <clears throat> and nothing to eat. So if I pass out here, just excitement, Jason, just tag in, okay? You know, like the 90s wrestler, just come tag in and go. My children, my little children, he says in verse one, chapter two, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. First thing he talks about is sin. He calls us little children. This is like, if you can think about uh, preacher grandpa here, John later in his life, such a love for his little children. He calls them little children. And then he writes them instructing them about sin. So we start with sin. Sin is the rejection of God. And it started way back in the garden when Adam and Eve were walking with God, enjoying creation, cultivating all that had been made. Imagine the most beautiful place that you've ever seen. Just think about it. What's the most beautiful place? Some of you, the shores of Hawaii, maybe the Grand Canyon. Maybe you got a little, little honey hole that you go hunting at. You just love that thing. Just imagine the most beautiful place and then times that times a hundred or a thousand. And, and now you're getting close of what the garden looked like. Unless, unless when I so, told you to think of the most beautiful place, you were thinking of Minden, then you're way off. It's still, it's still not, the, it's not the same thing. It's not, you have to times a lot more than that. <clears throat> Forgiveness if you're if from Minden. Um, <laughs> sin entered the picture and severed our relationship with God, the creator. You remember this, as they, they, they just disobeyed God. They thought their ways were better than God's ways. They wanted something they thought God was holding out. So they partook of something that God told them not to and then sin entered the world and it fractured everything like a mirror that's busted up into pieces. We were made for this relationship with God but now our sin separated us from the God who created us and loved us. We were created or made to reflect his glory, his image to the world but now we're broken and shattered all over the place and we were in a pickle between a rock and a hard place. People still say that. Not sure what that means but this was not good. We were meant to walk with God and to enjoy his presence and reflect his glory and our sin had separated us. And we didn't know who we were. We lost our identity. We didn't know why we were here. We didn't know what we were supposed to be doing. Because of the consequences of those sins, we had lost. We had fractured the image of God within us. Adam and Eve are forced to leave the garden on their way out. God promises that one day he's gonna make everything right. He's going to send the promised seed. And that promised seed would one day deal with the sin of humanity. And although he would bruise his heel, he would crush the serpent's head. Such a beautiful picture. And not that he would just send someone that he himself would come. He's going to send a redeemer. And he did that. I love that this passage says, but if anyone does sin... Anyone in here ever sinned before? Oh, just me. We got a bunch of liars in church. Anybody ever sinned before? Anybody ever sinned? Okay, everybody raising their hand and everybody lying, double sinned. Okay, we got it. 
Every one of us, if anyone has sinned, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. I love this. Doesn't that sound like a wrestler name? Jesus Christ the righteous. You got Andre the giant and Hacksaw Jim Duggan. And then you got Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus Christ the righteous. And why did he come? He came to remind us who we are. He came to buy us back. He came to redeem us. But if anyone does sin, that's all of us. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins and not ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. The sins of the whole world. John is committed that we know this. He tells us in John 3, he tells us a couple times here in his letters, the sins of the whole world. That anyone, all of time, that would ever put their faith and trust in Jesus' finished work on the cross... They would repent and believe that they would be adopted into this, into this royal family to be sons and daughters of the most high God. The propitiation. Look at these two words. I was, I was talking through this with a friend of mine. What are you preaching? I told him I'm preaching propitiation and, and, uh, and, and the advocate. He's like, you can't preach that on Easter. Some of these people have been in church for a whole year. They don't know propitiation. I was like, listen, we're fast learners down here in Bozier. We can, we can get this. Any of us that can go into Starbucks and order an upside down caramel macchiato at exactly a hundred and something degree temperature, shaken and not stirred, grande, we, we can get propitiation. Let's, propitiation. It's a hard word and I wouldn't use every day, but I want us to learn what this is, right? If my little third grader Hudson can find every hidden bonus in Super Mario Maker, then we can learn the best truths of God's word. Sometimes they're hidden in plain sight. This is one of them. This word propitiation means that if a claim against you, it means that a claim against you has been satisfied. Literally, it's been absorbed and goodwill has been replaced in its place. For example, if you got in a car wreck and you did $10,000 worth of damage to someone else's car, they have a charge against you. And when you pay that sum total of those damages caused to the other person by your accident, then that person is propitiated. They have no more claim against you because the claim has been settled. That's what, that's what the word means. Jesus propitiated the holy wrath of God against our sin by suffering the full penalty in our place. This is what the cross is about. On the cross, every ounce of penalty that you and I deserve for our sin was poured onto him. That's why the cross was so bloody. Had someone asked me the other day, why is it so bloody, so gross, so gruesome? That's the point, friends. Your sin was so gross and so gruesome to God, and it's only by the blood of Jesus Christ that it would be remedied, that it would be propitiated. This is what, he is the propitiation. But more than that, he's the advocate. Advocate's a legal term, referring to someone who argues your case before the bar of justice on your behalf. If you're a Christian, Jesus is your advocate before the Father. He stands there like a lawyer pleading your case. But what's he arguing? Usually an advocate argues you're innocent. But we've established that not me nor you are actually innocent here. We don't have any worthiness on our own. So he argues his propitiation, his substitutionary work on our behalf. He says, Father, you can't hold Luke's sin against him any longer. I suffered the full penalty of that sin on the cross. I used to have this idea that it was Jesus was standing as my advocate before, the, before God meant that he was standing pleading for leniency on my behalf. And that provided very little comfort for me. 
because I just kept on sinning. And I always thought that Jesus would walk in the, uh, the, the, the heavenly courtroom and he'd have my file under his arm and he would pull it out and it would have my name, Luke Allen, and in it would be listed all the things that I'd ever done wrong. And the accuser of the brethren, the Bible says that that's a thing. Satan's the accuser of the brothers and sisters of Christ. And he would be standing, I mean, rightly arguing my guilt before the judge. And he would say, you know what, Luke's guilty. You see what Luke did this week. And Jesus would stand up there and say, you know, this is in my thought. God, just give him a break. You know, I mean, look at all I've done. I went to earth and the cross and all the things. But I always thought, man, maybe one day that God's patience is going to run out. You know, like the 491st time that I actually sin. And the father would say, hey, Jesus, no more. We just, Luke's just a lost cause. Even with you in his corner, he's just going to have to pay for that one. However, Jesus... This is such good news, friends. Jesus does not appeal to God for mercy on my behalf. He appeals, for, he appeals for justice. That's what it means to be righteous, rightness with God. He has satisfied all the claims against me. And now, instead of saying, God the Father, will you please be lenient on Luke? He doesn't say that. He said, Father, I paid the full price for his sin. I took the penalty due to him so that he could have the credit due to me. It is only right that he not be held accountable for that sin. Isn't that a beautiful thing? This is what Jason talked about last week in chapter one, verse nine. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. You maybe underline those words just a page over. Faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice it didn't say that God the Father is merciful and kind. It doesn't say that to forgive us of our sins. It says he's faithful and just. God forgives us our sins not because he's lenient, but because he's just. Because God is just, he couldn't demand two penalties for the same sin. I don't know about you, but that gives me great confidence before God. No matter what kind of week I've had or how many times I've blown it. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, Paul says, so that we might become the righteousness of God. God substitutes his son for us, for our sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Now it's not just Jesus Christ, the righteous. It's Luke Allen, the righteous. I was reading a commentary by Stott this week and he painted this beautiful picture. The essence of sin is man taking God's place. We knock God out of the way and we take God's place. And when we think that we're God, that's the essence of sin. We live for our own selves and our selfishness and our glory. But the essence of the gospel, of course, this is me paraphrasing, is that God in humility took my place. That's the essence of the gospel and it is a beautiful gospel. Don't you see that friend that this changes everything? If the tomb is empty, then we can have a new identity. The enemy of our souls, the accuser, accuses us and we just point him to Jesus who had settled everything on our behalf and it gives us this new identity, children of God, beloved. Several times in this letter, this is what John calls the church, beloved. I love this. For those of you in this room who've placed your faith in Jesus, you don't have to strive to be accepted. You don't have to prove your own worth. You don't have to earn your place. No, you are loved and adopted and accepted. You are Sarah of the most high God. You are Luke of the most high God. You are Brian of the most, do you get that? Your identity comes from Jesus himself. 
He took your guilt and shame and exchanged this great exchange. He gave you the righteousness that he had. If you understand this in your heart of heart, it changes everything. This is the restored identity. It changes what you live for. It changes how you live. So renewed identity. Then let's look at the next thing that it changes. If the tomb is empty, we have a new mission. Maybe we should use the word purpose here or what we're living for. Look at verse three. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. John is talking about this radical change in the life of every believer that he no longer lives for himself, but instead he obeys the commandments of God. He walks in the word of God. And I love this phrase in verse five, in him, the love of God is truly perfected. It means matured. It means the love of God truly finds its home, truly finds its place. It's truly, the love of God is truly rooted in the life of a believer. And out of it grows these fruits of the spirit. Out of it grows this new reason for living. Out of it grows back into, right? What, what, what was robbed from us in the garden that we would live and cultivate. We live for the glory of God that we would reflect his image to the watching world. If the tomb is empty, we have this new mission. He would say in uh, the next chapter over, 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, by this we know that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has the world's goods and see his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love actually abide in him, in that person? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. If the tomb is empty, we have this new mission to extend to extend the love of God through us to the watching world. It's like we're a bucket and we're filled to the brim of the love of God. And we go out here in this world and we get knocked around and everybody that bumps into us gets a little love of God on them. It just spills right over the top of the bucket. Our mission is motivated by the love of God. Just as Jesus was compelled by his love for the Father and his love for humanity, so too we are invited to be compelled by that same love. Paul explains this beautifully. It's a long passage, but it's, I, want to, I want to read it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It'll be on the screen. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ this way, we don't any longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. That's that that restored identity. Old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. That is a powerful phrase. We're compelled by the love of God. 
And now inside us, God is making his appeal to all the lost sons and daughters of God. He's making his appeal through us. And not mainly through the preacher. He's making it through you. As you work and live and play and recreate and raise your kids and try to deal with the difficulties of life. As you restore broken relationships, as you forgive people who don't deserve it, as you're generous with people who haven't earned it, as you're merciful and kind, God is making his appeal through you that there is a better identity, that there is a better way. This mission begins with the heart of God. It's God's mission, his desire, his goal for his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. That all of the earth would be like heaven. Habakkuk, the prophet says, filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This was God's plan from the beginning that every living thing and every human being would live in a good world and experience unhindered intimacy with God the Father. Of course, as we've talked already, sin interrupted that, but Jesus died to restore it. And John explains it this way in verse five, this idea mature, but whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God is perfected, is mature, finds its roots. The love of God inside of us, again, spilling on everyone else. And he gives us two markers so we would really know if the love of God is actually in us because it's one thing to say it and it's another thing to really live it out. Well, how would I know, Luke, if the love of God is really inside of me? I believe all the stuff you're talking about, but I don't feel it. Two things he gives us there, that we would keep his commandments and that we would obey his word. That we would keep his commandments. Most notably, the greatest commandment. Remember when the teacher of the law came to Jesus and said, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And he said, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is likely you love your neighbor as yourself. And then he gets himself between a rock and a hard place when he said, who is my neighbor? And Jesus goes on to tell this beautiful story about the great, the good Samaritan, someone he would despise. And he asked him at the very end, well, who, who was the neighbor? He said, I guess the one who helped. And Jesus says, now you go and do likewise. This is just, this is what John's getting at. This is the summary of the commandments. We can have a lot more of those. We could look at the Sermon on the Mount. We could look at every word Jesus said. But basically, it's all summed up in that. The marker of our love for God, of his love being rooted in us and overflowing out of us is that we would keep his commandments and that we would obey his word. He says in verse five, but whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God is perfected, is matured. There's a lot of things in God's word that we should obey. I think the most notable thing that's on their minds at this point is the Great Commission. The Great Commission in every gospel, it's the last thing that Jesus told them. Wait for the power of the Holy Spirit and then you're gonna go be my witnesses. Go read it, it's in every one of the gospels. It's a little different version of it, every one of the gospels. Also, uh, the book of Acts has, it starts off with it, the Great Commission. This is the good news that I want you, as I make my appeal through you, I want you to bring this good news to your neighborhoods and to the ball field and announce it at your workplace and, and all the places you go. John would mention it most in this little letter. He would use this phrase, walking in the light. He would say it a dozen times that you walk in the light, walk in the light, walk in the light. And then additionally, as he explains it, that you would walk in love. That you would walk in love. 
being truthful, full of integrity, being known, and then loving others with the same radical love that you've been loved with. If the tomb is empty, we have a new mission. We have a restored identity. And if that was it, I think we would go out and we would try, but I don't think we'd ever get it. So that's not it. If the tomb is empty, we can have supernatural power. Look at the last verse, end of verse five, verse six. By this, we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk the same way in which he walked. We can now walk in the same manner that Jesus walked in. Some people think that this is only for the super spiritual, you know, like, you know, the hardcore disciples. No, this is for everybody. That we can walk in the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. And every one of those great commissions, this is what Jesus said. Hey, don't miss this. Hey, before you go start telling the world about me and I want you to do that, I want you to go wait for the Spirit. Holy Spirit's gonna come. And he's gonna fill you from the inside and he's gonna supernaturally empower you to the degree that Jesus told his disciples, you remember this, that it's better that I go so that the spirit comes. That that you're gonna do greater works. We can now walk in the same manner that Jesus walked in. The life and power of Christ are made accessible through the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit. John would get to this. One more chapter over in chapter four, verse 13. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. Holy Spirit is the one who enables us to abide and live in his love. The one who empowers us to live this abundant life that Jesus promised. The one who enables us to have spiritual fruit and to serve the poor and those that are difficult to love and to take on this mission to embody the gospel to a world that is lost and so desperately needs it. It is the spirit who invites us into the very presence of God to forever enjoy communion with him. You've been given a supernatural power, but this power doesn't make you proud. You ever thought about if you had a superhero power, what you would want it to be? We talk about this in the house all the time. Flying is definitely the best one. I mean, People talk about a lot of different ones. And if I had that power, if you had that power, I think we'd walk around, you know, like Superman. No one really thought he was Clark Kent. That dude walked with a strut. He knew what was up, right? He knew he could do anything, he could fly to space if he wanted to. But we are filled with the supernatural, the real, not myth. We are filled with the real supernatural power. Paul says living inside of us is the same power that raised Jesus from the, from the dead. That's the same spirit that lives inside of us. But instead of, us make, instead of making us proud, it makes us humble. That's crazy. Only God's power can do that. Because it's not our power. This is what John keeps getting back to. The key here is abiding. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk the same way he walked, it says in verse 6. You remember this from John 15. John uses this word a lot, this abide in him. He uses it 11 times in seven verses. He really wants us to get this idea, this word abide. It means to remain or to rest in or to hang with or to indwell, to abide. To abide in Jesus is to invite him into every aspect of our life. And 
to find our purpose in him and our identity in him and our nourishment in him and our power coming from his presence. It's beautiful, flourishing, restful, yet productive life that we all long for can be found first by abiding in Jesus. All the other wells, as Jeremiah would say, that we attempt to dig on our own are empty cisterns that cannot hold life. They, they, they can't live up to the demands that we put on them. So Jesus told his disciples, remember this in John 15, this is right before he's going to walk this, this last uh, few hours of his life. He's going to go to the upper room right after that and into the garden. This is just a beautiful picture. <clears throat> he's talking to them, actually actually sharing this like as he's walking to the garden. You have to abide in him. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from him. Jesus told his disciples to abide in him like a branch to a vine in order to receive life. It is the fact that the person of the spirit lives inside of us and has that life-giving power flowing through our veins to produce this abundant life, this river of living water. Jesus was speaking about the spirit's work in us. He would also say in John chapter four, verse 13, everyone who drinks this water, this is when he's talking to the Samaritan woman, everyone who drinks this water be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Every time you see eternal life, that doesn't just mean life in the future. That means abundant life even now. Through the spirit, we're empowered to live the abundant life that Jesus promised. The spirit would be like a well of living water that is flowing through us, bringing life and vitality to every part of ourselves. And this refreshing water will also flow out of us as the spirit works to bring life to those we interact with. We're like a, every church should be like this, like walking oasis in the midst of a desert that you can, people can just see it. There's just something so radically different about your hope. You've got the spring of living water inside of you. Here's the truth, friends. A lot of us don't live that kind of life. And it's not because we don't believe that kind of thing. It's because we have not just really remained or abided or hung out with or found our rest in Jesus. Can I, can I just say I'm the, I'm the guiltiest of sinners here? That I read God's word and be so filled up with it and be so excited about it and I'll be ready to go my day and then one bad phone call, one arrogant driver, one something and I'll, I'll just, I'll take my eyes off and I'll start doing the things in my own flesh. And I'm like, well, if I was, if I was in charge, I'd be doing it this way. And if I could, if I could have a little zapper, I'd zap that car and they would just, you know, their car quit and just fall over into the ditch or something, you know, just, man, if I was in charge, I would definitely take him out of there and I would put, uh, I would, you know, if I was in charge, but I'm not in charge. And I start doing everything in my own flesh. We do things in our flesh is when we start saying like, man, if I just had a better wife, if I just had better kids, if I had a better boss, if I had a better situation, if things weren't just so, so bad all the time, if it was all these excuses, we take our eyes off of Jesus. We quit remaining with him. We start walking in the flesh and not the spirit. That's why Paul would tell the church at, 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 at Ephesus, continually be filled with the spirit. And you know how you do that? Okay, this is worth the money you paid to come, which was nothing, okay? You just ask him. That's all you do. You're in the middle of your frustration, in the middle of your, in your funk, you just look to him and say, Holy Spirit, will you feel me again? Sorry, I, I got off there a little bit. I, I started doing things my own self. Would you, 
I just, need, I just need to experience this forgiveness. I need to lock eyes with you again. I just need you to speak life and truth back into me. I need you to fill me with the same spirit that raised Jesus from the, gra- from the grave because this situation is, is really bad and I don't know what I'm going to do and he'll do it every time. All you do is ask him. He is willing and ready to empower us and fill each one of us every day as we invite him into our mind and heart and our circumstances. No longer do we have to live lives of exhaustion or defeat or legalism trying to earn our way in. Instead, we can invite the spirit to fill us and empower us so that we can do the will, the mission that God's put in front of us. We can turn to God in prayer at any time, as many times as you want to. Say, oh, spirit, I need it again. Spirit, I need it again. You know, God knew I was gonna teach this text today and he wanted to make sure I knew this. I had one of those weeks where I tried to do everything in the flesh that I possibly could just to remind me that I have nothing on my own. So whenever you hit the ditch, you just invite him in again. Holy Spirit, would you lead and guide and empower me? St. Augustine said, I think I have this quote, this is beautiful. Oh, Holy Spirit, Descend plentifully into my heart. Enlighten the dark corners of this neglected dwelling and scatter there thy cheerful beams. To trust in God, to live and walk in the spirit is to live counterculturally. It's to live as a completely new type of human. And when a spirit-filled Christian, the spirit's power and love flows through you, you become super normal exceeding or beyond the normal, actual definition, and supernatural, exceeding or beyond the natural. If the tomb is empty, friends, anything is possible. And we can live this type of life with this type of mission, this restored identity, with this type of power offered to us through Jesus. So we just gotta choose. It's funny in that, text we read in Luke 24 that Jesus remember we just read it the ladies were there uh, preparing the spices you know why the ladies had to go prepare the spices because uh, they sent the the husbands the day before and they knew if they sent the husbands to do something they're gonna mess that up husbands you ever try to clean the kitchen your wife has to come in and reclean the kitchen yes that happens to me all the time so they go the ladies go to prepare the spices And he's not there. And yeah, I love that phrase. Why are you seeking the living among the dead? And then he, then he appears, then, then, then Peter and John go and check it out. And, uh, same thing, not there. Clothes been folded. And then there's this real cool story. How he walks on the road to Emmaus. You ever heard this story? This is just a beautiful story. I'm not gonna tell the whole thing, but I want you to do it. The point I want to make is no one expected Jesus to do what he did. The ladies didn't expect it. And he said, didn't you know that that's what he had said he had to do? The prophet's been talking about this. And they told the same thing to Peter and John. They told the same thing to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Then he appeared to them again, pointing back to himself. Here's the beauty of Easter. And I'm gonna finish with this. Friends, this is a freedom that you have to choose to walk in. You have to walk in this new identity of a beloved son or daughter. I don't think you get it. You are beloved of the most high God. All his affection that he had for Jesus, he's now placed on you. You've been invited to the table. You got the ring of authority and belonging on your finger. You walk in the new clothes, the clothes of the king. You're clothed with his glory. 
You have to walk in that new identity. You have to walk in this new person, this new purpose, this secured servanthood. When you know that you're loved to that degree, that you don't have to earn or strive or work to earn God's love for you, all you have to do is choose it. Then you walk in this secure servanthood. I have nothing to earn. I don't have to prove anything. I can go, I've got the, what, what, is, what does Paul tell uh, Timothy? You don't have to be fearful anymore. God didn't give you a spirit of fear. No, the enemy gave you that. He gave you the spirit of power and of love and self-discipline. The power to walk through any circumstance, no matter how difficult. The power to love even the most unlovable person. Some of you are going to see that most unlovable person today. You're going to go have the Easter dinner with them. I want you to know the Holy Spirit has given you the power to love them like Jesus. So when your brother-in-law brings up the most divisive issue and he's clearly an idiot, okay, and, and he's a moron and God's placed him in your family, you don't have to tell him. You can just love him. Just like Jesus, you can just love him. You have to walk in that new mission, that new purpose. You have to walk in this new power. I want to pray for you, invite the band back up. But before we leave, I just want you to do a little business with God right where you're at. I'm not going to have some formal invitation. I'm not inviting you to get out of your seats. I'm not putting you on the spot. But to some of you that you know that everything I've talked about sounds so foreign to you. That you don't know what this new nature is like, this new identity, this new mission, this new purpose, this new power. You don't know anything about that. And some of you can feel it in your heart right now, the Holy Spirit is working and you're coming up in your head with every reason why you should not take a step of faith this morning. And I'm begging you on behalf of God to take a step of faith. To take the mess of your life, all the things that you've worked hard for and strove for and your identity and status and everything and you're just gonna say, okay, I've surrendered working for all those things and you're just gonna push all that over to the center of the table and you say, Jesus, I'm giving it all to you. I trust you. Others of you, you're, you're a disciple. You've, you've been walking with Jesus, but some things have happened, the stress of life, the difficulty of this season, and you just, you just quit remaining in him. You quit resting in him. You picked up the mantle again and tried to do it yourself. Thought your ideas were better. So maybe this is a returning home for you. That you just say, Jesus, I just, I've done it myself and I made a mess of it. And I'm just gonna give it back to you. And I don't even know what that means. I don't know what that's gonna require of me, but Lord, I know you'll lead me, you'll guide me. You're just gonna give it back to him. Some of you are walking through some really difficult stuff right now and you just need his power to fill you again. Would you just ask him? I'm gonna pray in just a minute and me and a couple other pastors and our prayer team will be in the back and we'd love to pray with, with you. But maybe you just wanna grab the hand of someone you came with and you said, would you, just, would you pray with me that I would walk in this kind of power? Would you, pr would you pray for us that we would Realize this new purpose? Would you, would you pray with me? I've, I've never given my life to Christ. God, I thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for Easter that we can celebrate and we can sing from the depths of our, our souls that the grave's been turned into a garden. You've turned mourning to dancing. And we ask that you do it again. Do it in our hearts again. Help us to see it again. 
to experience it again, to come close to you again. I pray for those that are really weighing, they're just so close to taking a step of faith. I pray, Holy Spirit, you'd give them the boldness to do that. But I pray that the aroma of our worshiping voices come to you and it's a pleasing aroma. Thank you for Easter and all it means in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll be in the back if you want to pray. Sing with us.